You're listening to episode 47 of the Pastor Writer Podcast, conversations on writing, reading, and the Christian life. I'm your host, Chase Replowell. Well, it's 2019, and can you think of a better way to start off the new year than talking a little bit about grammar? Today's podcast is a conversation with Jonathan Rogers. He's an author as well as a coach to writers. I first got introduced to his work through his online course, Grammar for Writers. It's been a big help for me, and I think it would be for many other listeners. We talk about grammar, but also his own writing, how he developed as a writer, and advice he has for writers. I think it'll be a great way to start off the year. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Joining me on the podcast today is Jonathan Rogers. He's a writer and educator, holds a PhD in 17th century literature from Vanderbilt University. He's the author of several works of fiction, including the Wilder King Trilogy series of middle-grade novels, but he's also a nonfiction writer with works including The World According to Narnia, Christian Themes, and C.S. Lewis's Beloved Chronicles, The Terrible Speed of Mercy, a biography of Flannery O'Connor, and then St. Patrick, a biography. Jonathan teaches writing through his online newsletter, The Habit, a weekly email newsletter about writing, and through in-person workshops as well as online courses. Jonathan, it's great to have you on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Thanks, Chase. I'm so glad you... You invited me. Well, uh, m- listeners who who have listened to past episodes of the podcast will know that I'm also a Flannery O'Connor fan. I'm constantly sort of pushing pastors to read more Flannery O'Connor. In fact, I just I last episode had the ten books of 2018 that had the biggest impact on me, and I, I tried to uh, promote Flannery O'Connor's complete short stories. But I was listening to a past episode, an interview you did on another podcast. And it was really interesting to hear you talk about that one of the influences for the Wilder King series was listening to Eugene Peterson's teachings of David that eventually turned into the book Leap Over a Wall, which was also one of the 10 books that I had recommended that I had read oh, in 2018. Really? Yeah, so I was really interested to hear uh, maybe about how that developed a little bit. Oh, well, I um, the the uh, my exposure to that was a just a friend who had for some reason had this the tape of uh, the the sermon series tapes that then became the basis for Leap Over a Wall, and I was just sort of at a time in my life when I didn't know I didn't I didn't know what was next really, and um, I I had quit I'd quit a job at a technology company and. Um, knew I wanted to write, um, thought I was going to be writing something more like technical writing or something. Um, but I'd gone to Florida to kind of uh, sort some things out, sort of figure out what what next steps were. And um, and it was this sort of perfect storm of between canoeing in the swamps and, and then um, listening to these sermons about the life of David um, and, and really, really thinking about What's it like for a, for a child, you know, to sort of know the, the, the themes of David's life, not when he was king, but in that in that gap between when he knew he was going to be king and and when he became king. I was, I've always been fascinated by what would it be like to know this is in the future, but I'm not there yet. And um, I just all those that sort of uh, stew pot of of things became the Wilder King stories, you know, a, a, a retelling of the David story. You know that part of David's life um, in the swampy American environment, um, and yeah, the, the leap over a wall just sort of opened up um, a lot of possibilities for me, a lot of narrative possibilities in, in David's story. Um, uh, just a lot of things I had never thought about, and in, in, in Eugene Peterson's. Uh, I think a subtitle there in that book is something like Earthy Christianity. Does that sound yeah, right? Yeah, Earthy Chase? Spirituality, I think is the phrase, which is great, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah. And so, so that idea of earthy spirituality um, just really uh, rang a lot of bells for me. And um, it has been such an important, you know, the, the, the idea of earthiness is just so important to my, to my writing and my teaching of writing. Um, you know, so often we think of writing as being a matter of, is, is a cerebral exercise, which of course it is, you know, we, we, things happen in our brain when we write, but, but the real, uh, I think it's, we, we can't lose sight of the, the fact that the whole point of writing is to sort of take those abstractions and bring them down to something concrete, something that, that we can make sense of with our five senses. And that's really what, what Eugene Peterson is talking about in that book and in so many of his, his works really. Um, and so that had a huge impact on, on my writing and on my teaching of writing. Well, maybe you could give us a little context too for, um, at what point did you know? So you've, you're sort of already hinted at this idea of transitioning career wise into writing, but at what point you started to recognize writing was something you wanted to pursue? And then also my inter- first initial interactions with your work were primarily through your teaching of writing. So at what point did, did you say, not only do I want to do writing, but I also sense that teaching writing to others is a part of that calling? Yeah. I, um, I mean, when I, from the time I learned how to write my letters, I, I wanted to write stories. Um, I was always writing little poems and stories when I was little. Kind of lost lost touch with that. Um, was always very academic, and so the first part of my um, adult life, I guess you'd say, was all about academics. You know, I, was, I got a PhD in in, uh, in literature. I thought I was headed down that path. You know, the first time I read uh, Paradise Lost, I was like, I want to be a Milton professor. This is great. And pursued that. I mean, I got a PhD in, in Milton, actually. And um, but by the time I got my degree, I just didn't I didn't really believe in the academic pro- project anymore. I mean, the, at least the way it was it's usually done. And um, it was kind of at, at, at loose ends. I, I, I didn't want to be an academic. You know, so I did a lot of writing as an academic. But that's very different from the kind of writing that I do now. And um, went to work for a technology company for five years, um, which was actually a pretty great experience in terms of teaching me to, to do some things that I didn't know how to do from my academic life. And uh, but but that was so far removed from where my gifts and talents were. I always knew I was a I knew my gifts were you know in that direction in, in the writing. I'd always been a teacher also, um, but um, you know in an academic. But as I um, um, as I sort of realized I couldn't keep working at this technology company, just my, it, it wasn't where my gifts were. Um, I, it, and that's really where Flannery O'Connor brought me back to, to writing, you know, it, Milton sort of took, sent me in an academic direction, but, but uh, Flannery O'Connor brought me back to a, to a, in a writerly direction. And I'm drawing a distinction there between, you know, being writerly and being academic. Um, and so somewhere along the, I mean, I, it, it was apparent all along that teaching was part of my calling and um and i avoided that for a long time i have been teaching at a tiny college in franklin tennessee called new college franklin for the last eight or nine years and um um, but also i love doing this online teaching i love teaching adults writing because frankly when adults take a writing class there's usually some reason there's something they're trying to work through, or uh, I'm just I just love the work I get from from grownups um, in creative writing classes. 
I don't know if that answered your question, Chase. That was kind of a, a, a ramble. No, it doesn't. It's easy to see the connections between, um, you know, Flannery O'Connor's obviously working out of her faith, also working out of the fact that she's from the South and she's right. doing it through fiction, which really comes through in your works too. You know, you, you the, there's the faith piece, the, the location, the sort of American South, the fiction. It makes a sense that sort of that's, that's where the interest sort of took you. Um, also all of the online workshops that you're doing, you've got one on Flannery O'Connor, you've got several on fiction. Um, maybe you could give some context and update too on what those workshops are, how those work for people who might be interested in them. Yeah. So, um, for the last four or five years, I've been rotating back and forth between a class I call, um, writing close to the earth, back to that theme. And, uh, one called writing with Flannery O'Connor. Those are just six week, um, six week classes where, um, up to 12 people. Um, well, like I say, it usually end up expanding it, uh, to, up to 15, but in theory, 12 people, limited to 12 people. We go through, um, you know, every Monday there's a, there are new readings, a new writing assignment, there's conversation. Um, and we do that for six weeks. Every week, somebody submits, I mean, everybody submits a, um, uh, a short piece of writing. Um, and then I, the, the real sort of heart of that, of those classes is the feedback I give on people's writings. Um, and then, um, uh, so that's the, I call those the legacy classes. You know, th- those are the classes in which I'm interacting every week with the uh, with the writers. I'm, I'm starting a new thing actually just this month. Um, uh, smaller workshops. I'm doing a memoir workshop right now and a fiction workshop later in the spring. Um, those are only four weeks. There's only six people in those, um, and we just sort of work on one piece of you know one memoir or one um, piece of fiction all four weeks and. Um, but what I'm most excited about that I'm doing right now is something I call Field Notes for Writers, and it's it's a it's a membership. Um, it's a library of of content that grows every week. Um, every um, you know, every week I'll add maybe a maybe it'll be a conversation between me and, and a writer friend, or maybe it'll be um, a webinar, or uh, uh, sometimes a um, I'll sort of walk through the the edits on a given. Um, Essay that I've been uh, that's been submitted uh, um, in one of my online classes, and so um, anyway, that library grows every week. Um, and but but what I really hope it's going to become um, is a hub of community for writers, a place where writers can kind of interact with one another, maybe share their work with each other a little bit, give each other a little more courage. Um, and that's called Field Notes for Writers, and that's what I'm really I'm really hoping 2019 will be the um, will be the year when when that takes off a little bit. I've, I've spent the last quarter the, the the last quarter of 2018 was all about building that library, um, and now I'm hoping we can start to be, start to build the um, the um, uh, the community. Yeah, it's definitely one I'm interested in as well, too. And I, I'm actually a member of been working through the grammar content. And there's so many good writing courses out there when it comes to, hey, how do I get published? How do I do the, the marketing side of writing? But sort of, as you're describing, the nuts and bolts of here's a piece of writing. Let me work through and show you edits and suggestions. And that sort of stuff is so valuable. So I, I'm excited about it as well. Yeah, you know, that's one of my one of my policies is I don't talk about publishing. Um. I'll, I'll talk about the craft of writing all day long, but but I just don't I don't get into the business of giving advice about publishing, or in part because I don't have much advice to give about publishing. <laughs> 
Well, and I know there are a lot of listeners out there that are in that exact place. Like, okay, I get the process. I've got to query an agent. I've got to, you know, put together a proposal. But before any of that, I just need to square up in my mind, how do I improve as a writer? And so um, I'm excited for people to be able to see the work you're doing and and find those courses because I think it's helpful for that. And one of those topics that I know comes up for so many people, especially early on in writing is, um, well, and it's 2019, a new year. So what better way to kick it off than to talk about grammar? And as you point <laughs> out, uh, this is one of the big fears people have. They're afraid of grammar. They're, I know for a fact that it can keep people from writing because they're worried about, you know, I did poorly in grammar in school or I've, you know, I, I know there's holes in my understanding of grammar. And so it's going to keep me from writing. Um, when you talk to, as you say, adults that are interested in picking up writing, maybe for the first time or picking it back up what is the role of grammar and and is it possible to to fill in those gaps to improve and and to actually help motivate you into the writing through it well i I think when i teach grammar and i i love teaching this this class grammar for writers which i I should have mentioned that that's going to be a standalone class soon um we're still kind of um um making edits to the videos but anyway um I think it's so important to to rethink the way we frame grammar. Um, grammar's it gets it gets sort of treated as a competitive sport almost. People love correcting other people's grammar, and and people take pleasure in calling themselves grammar Nazis and the grammar police and grammar bullies. I mean, it's it really amazes me the extent to which people um, take pleasure in in. Um, no wonder people are afraid of grammar, right? Because people really love pointing out other people's grammar mistakes. And the truth is, grammar is is a bridge. It's a way of connecting um, the writer and the reader, and, and a way of connecting the reader to to the information or, or the the story that the that the reader wants that the writer wants to tell. And also, a really important point is that you get grammar right. 90 I'm, I'm making this statistic up but like 99% of the time um it's true that there are some you know some problem areas um but but I think I think the first step in getting getting better at grammar is is to to stop thinking of it as a way of of you know proving yourself or as a way of being a source of embarrassment but but really thinking in terms of this is one way to love my reader and so when I teach grammar um, I try to always think in terms of, um, you know, how are we going to to connect with the reader better? Now, that's not exactly um, um, that's not super. Um, well, it's not super pragmatic or practical to I mean, that's not a that's not enough. Right. Think, you know, reframing your way of thinking about grammar is not enough. But I do think it's a way to open up um, people who are afraid of grammar to maybe maybe thinking about it in a different way. And I think that opens, I think that, that makes it possible for people to start um, really thinking through grammar issues and, and sentence structure and things like that, because it really, grammar really is and sentence structure um, is once you start thinking, okay, I'm doing, I'm, I'm constructing this sentence for a reader, not for myself. Um, and then what are the structures that are going to make that make this story more accessible to a reader? Um, to help this reader love the things I love, um, it really makes a difference in the way you think about um, about things. Yeah, I know for me and a lot of pastors listening will resonate. In seminary, uh, the sort of the moment I realized how poor some of my grammar skills were was when I tried to learn another language. So sitting through Greek class exposed 
oh, I have to actually catch up on some of my English grammar before I can understand Greek grammar. And so uh, you go through that process. But I do. I think that's one of the things I've enjoyed about the course, your course on grammar for writers is um, it's sort of it's at a, an easy pace to be able to sort of pick up the next video, work through it. And it, you can think of it as sort of, um, well, you know, like a, an artist has certain skill sets they have to have if they're painting or drawing and there's certain tools in place. And I think of the writing course as something like that. It's a way of sort of making sure all of those skill sets are in order and catching back up and um, it doesn't feel like a lot of pressure and so I think it, it's a it's a really really helpful especially in removing that fear that can so often keep people from sitting down and actually doing the writing yeah good I'm glad to hear it uh, well, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about one of the things that people can sign up for, even if they're not interested in a course, is your weekly newsletter, The Habit. Uh, give a little context for what that is. Um, you describe it as a weekly email newsletter about writing. It's one that I've subscribed to as well, too. But um, what's, what's your approach to the content for that? Um, man, I, I that's a, what's my approach? That's a great question. It's it's uh, kind of whatever's on my mind about about writing topics on any given week. And I call it the habit because I, I really think it's important that we think in terms of habits um, even more than we think about skills or, or goals. or um, And frankly, I needed the habit of sitting down and writing, you know, really thinking about, well, I needed, I needed to get better at writing on a regular basis. Um, and I thought, you know, putting myself on the hook to write a newsletter about writing every week would be a way to do that. And actually, this is – you and I are talking on January 3rd. I think my first um, issue of The Habit was January 2nd of last year, and I managed to uh, to actually deliver a, a newsletter every, every week, every Tuesday uh, for the whole year. And so that – it certainly for me uh, succeeded in, uh, in building that habit. Um, but – but as I said, it's I call it the habit because I, we we need as writers we need to be developing you know habits um, and and all those other things sort of follow when you have the habits the skills that you need to develop they develop when you have the habit of writing um, but it's also not just the habit it's not just the the habit of sitting down every day or or you know it's it's, it's not just work habits it's also habits of the way we. Um, observe the way we um, uh, the way we construct sentences. Um, you know, I'm, I'm always uh, looking for for what what are better habits to to develop. Yeah, this was one of for the beginning of the year. One of the emails that you sent out, I think, a couple of weeks ago, and you had this great T.S. Eliot quote in it, and uh, I wrote it down here. Um, T.S. Eliot writes, "I say to you, make perfect your will. I say, take no thought of the harvest, but only of proper sowing." And then you discuss in 2019 why you are sort of you've described you're thinking more about the habits you want to put in place versus the goals. Um, What are some of the ways you see goal setting like that? Because this is the big topic, right? Like every every time I open social media right now this week, it's the first week of January. Everybody's got their goals for 2019, the resolutions for 2019. And instead, you're giving us this TSL quote about stop, stop thinking about the harvest. Think about proper sowing habits in 2019. How do writers sometimes get? get lost or get, get sort of tripped up goal setting versus habit setting? Well, I grade a lot of papers, uh, or I have graded a lot of papers. And one thing I notice that I think is very telling is how often a, a, an academic essay will be, you know, not very good, not very good, not very good. And then in the last 
paragraph, a student just says something that blows me away at the end. And and what what I realize from those essays is something that, that I have found to be true in my own writing is when you start, you don't you don't know what you're do, you don't know what you're writing about, you don't know what your goal is. Uh, you can define goals in terms of I want to produce this many words or this many pages or whatever, and there's nothing I'm, I'm not opposed to that kind of goal setting. But the truth is, it, you have you have to pay attention to the sowing and not to the harvest because you don't know what the harvest is going to be. You know, I've written four novels, and of those four novels, there was only one that I knew how it was going to end before I started writing it. You know, if if I had, you have to give yourself permission not to begin with the end in mind. Uh, I think that's you know that's uh, Stephen Covey gives that advice, begin with the end in mind, which I think is great advice in almost everything but writing <laughs> because so often we don't know what the end is. You have to just sit down and do the work. Do the you know uh, uh, you know tend to the sowing and and see what see what the harvest is going to be because you don't even know what the harvest is going to be. And so um, that's a big part of what I mean when I say focus on on habits instead of goals. Um, give yourself permission just to sort of sit down and 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 do the work and and trust that the the end goal is gonna is gonna you know reveal itself now i I usually have an idea of of where I'm going with a story or with an essay or with anything but but almost always it turns out that where I thought I was going is not where I really needed to be going, and so I hold that very loosely and um and so that's that's a sort of really big picture of what I mean when I say we need to be focusing on habits instead of goals. Um, and then at a, at a sort of more practical level, there's the simple fact that that whatever goal you're setting as a writer, you know, especially when people have goals of publishing, you know, publishing related goals, that's not in your control. And so it's so important that you that you focus on the things you do have control over, and you have control over your habits. Yeah, I think. That's really good advice. We um one of the themes that comes up on the podcast so often is learning to just love the work itself because you're right, so much yes. of what happens with the work is out of your control, sort of the arbitrary goal of I'm going to even finish the book this year or get a publishing contract this year. Like there's just so much of that you're right, you can't put on a calendar or figure out how it's going to work, but you can figure out how am I going to approach the page? What are the habits I'm developing as a writer putting in place and you give some really good ones in the in this um, this email from the habit that you sent out, and one of the first ones you have listed is uh, in 2019. One of the habits you think people should consider yourself as well is the habit of ignoring the inner critic during the first draft. And I think you're sort of starting to allude allude to that even in your answer. But what is the relationship of this inner critic you describe to that first initial step, the setting down, the first draft, the first words of writing? I always say, you know, you, you have to you have to treat your inner critic like a kind of like an annoying friend who won't quit giving you advice. You know, you have to tell that 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 inner critic. It, it's not that you know people talk about silencing the inner critic. I don't think you need to silence the inner critic. You need to tell the inner critic, hey, hold on, let let me just do what I'm doing right here, and then I'm going to invite you back, and and we'll have a conversation later, right? Because we have a word for people who don't have an inner critic, and that word is lunatic. <laughs> You have to have an inner critic, um, but it's so important to um, to keep the pen moving and uh, and not think about what is 
somebody else going to think about this or or whatever in that first draft it, you know the the bad first draft is is your best friend as a writer and so if you have a if you have the inner critic insisting that you that you keep you know that you that every sentence you put down be a brilliant sentence i mean that's just that way madness lies you know and and so um the inner critic is so uh, uh what's the word i'm looking for i mean just it, it, it's that most of your you know, most of your listeners who aren't producing who 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 are, are um who are in the throes of writer's block so much of it has to do with with that critic that inner critics um and the perfectionism and that kind of stuff and you have to let that go um just just get in the in the habit of writing uh you know putting that first draft down um that you know giving yourself permission to write badly knowing that the the good stuff sometimes just has to come after you have to get the bad stuff out before you get to the good stuff. Um, now, as I said, you'd be a fool not to then re-engage the inner critic for the second and third draft. Um, and that's where that critic is your, is your best friend or, you know, is a friend, let's just say. Yeah, this is you, you put this down as the second habit of 2019 to practice. This first one, the habit of ignoring the inner critic during the first draft. And then as you stated, the habit of re-engaging that same inner critic for the second and third draft. And this is for me, this was one of the big things of, of, of writing that I had to initially work through. And it was that no one reads the first draft. Like yeah. it may exist somewhere in a file on my computer, but any insecurity about what I've produced, I'm the only person on earth that will ever read that first draft. And I immediately get a chance to fix it. And so for me, one of the things I started to recognize was good writing is not so much the ability to sit down and write a perfect sentence. To me, good writing really stems out of, and I think this is why you get the advice read good writers are readers, because I think good writing has to do with taste and it's the ability to look at something you've written objectively enough to recognize what's wrong with it, which can go wrong two directions, right? Like the inner critic can come in too early and just stop you from writing because it's not good enough. Or the opposite, you could write something and just assume that what you've written is wonderful and perfect because you you wrote it and there is yeah. no inner critic to see. But the ability to recognize when I've written something poorly, that is everything that writing is in my experience. Yeah. Yeah. I always tell students it's quicker to write three drafts than to write one, which sounds like some sort of joke, but I mean it literally because if you're thinking I've got to get this right in one draft, you'll sit there and stare at the blank page for who knows how long. But if you say I'm going to write a bad first draft and then I'm going to then I'm going to revise it a couple of times, that's actually faster than trying to get it done in one draft. Um, and um but as you said, that requires the ability to step to step back from your own work and and read it as if it were somebody else's work. And that's some people are better at that than others. Well, and you offer as a third one the habit of writing second and third drafts. What are you thinking about? Um, you've written a first draft. You've read back through it. You recognize you recognize the problems. You know, you see yourself searching for the right words and phrases in places. You you see where the logic may not flow particularly well um what are how are you thinking about and how are you going into those second and third drafts um hmm. let's see i mean i guess as a, i'm always usually by the time i finish the first draft i feel like i know i know what it needs in that second and third draft um 
And I don't quite, I don't, you know what? That's a very interesting question. I don't quite know how to answer it, Chase. Um, I, I feel like I, I know it when I get there. You know, I, I don't even know how to give the advice of here's what you're trying to do in your second and third draft. It's kind of like um, the act, let, let me just say this much. The act of pushing through that first draft usually reveals what I'm really trying to say, uh, what I really care about. Um, and, and the, the sentence that I thought was so clever the first time through, um, I'm now ready to, to kill that darling, you know? And, and, you know, that's, that's such an important idea to me is that that second and third draft, I have enough distance to say, if somebody else wrote that sentence, I would have been annoyed by it. And so, I needed to get out of my system. I needed to write that sentence, and I'm glad I did because once I got it out of my system, then I was ready to write something better. Um, and um, and so I guess that's that's the approach. You know, again, that that inner critic. Um, I, I allow that inner critic to get ruthless after I get a draft down. Yeah, and that's my experience as well. Sometimes um, it's ironic that the, in the first draft, the things that I worked the hardest on and thought was the strongest or the best usually tends to be overwritten and, and really the worst part. And usually the the part that comes out of it that's the best is the thing that I didn't really even have in mind when I first sat down to write. You're, as you sort of described, it's the thing I discover through that process of writing that really becomes the heart of that, that second or third draft, the thing that's really worth writing. Yeah, man, when you hold too tightly to that idea you started with, you don't really open yourself up to the possibility that you're to, to the possibility of, of writing something better than than what's what's in your head, um, and when you don't open yourself up to the possibility of grace, you know, when, when when you when you rely on your own strength, all you've got is your own strength and your own intelligence and your own whatever, which frankly, just for most of it, for most of us, isn't enough. The last couple of habits you have in that list, I think get at why this is so difficult because um, you know, you're saying it's quicker to write three drafts, but we all know what we want is to sit down and write the thing and it be exactly what we want it to be. And yeah. we're, we're in love with an idea or something we want to say, and we're trying to get that done as quickly as possible and hit publish and put it online. But the last couple of habits you recommend, um, the next to last is the habit of paying attention of seeing the stories and images that unfold around us. And the last one is the habit of staying in the chair and turning off devices, not finding something easier to do when faced with the hard work of putting words on the page. What is the relationship of that, the paying attention for the writer and also the willingness to stay in the chair of turning off devices, of working maybe more slowly than what we initially thought we were going to? Yeah. Well, paying attention, um, the the world is just full of stories and and images and and so much good stuff going on around us and and you know writing. I, I alluded to this earlier. We think of it as being cerebral, as sort of digging into your inner self or your inner inner this, inner that. Um, and obviously, you have to have a certain amount of of self awareness and and inner life to be a writer. But it's so important to look outward. I mean, I think that's where the real action is. It's outside of us. Um, there's, there's a limit to how interesting my inner life is, but the world outside me is fascinating. And, um, and we, we sometimes get it in our head that, that the life we're living is routine or the, the settings in which we find ourselves are uninteresting. Um, I ran into a guy once who was, 
his job was to to clean up train wrecks, literally. I'm like he, he was he was he was wearing a T-shirt that said something, you know, derailment services. And we were at a convenience store, and I just asked him, "Tell me about your job. You you clean up train wrecks?" And he said, "Yeah." And I said, "So tell me about it. What's that like?" He said, "You know, it's a job." And I thought, how can you be so inattentive to your life <laughs> that you think cleaning up a train wreck is is you know just a job? Um. But we all do that, don't we? I mean, we, we, we get in our head that, that this is that things are just routine, but that's just not it's just not true. The world is not routine. And as we pay attention to it, um, you know, our, our cups get full uh, as, as writers. It gives us things to talk about. Um, and so, you know, I'm talking about gratitude. I'm talking about wonder. I'm talking about all those the habits of of inhabiting the life that God has dropped us into. And um and that's, you know, our, our writing is just a, an attempt to depict the world that, that God has put us in and, um, and tell the truth about it. And, um, and so that requires that you pay attention. So that's what, that, that's what I'm talking about in that habit. Yeah. I, in my mind, this is one of the areas where I find a lot of congruence between my pastoral work and writing because I do think this ability to see what God is doing – not in abstractions or generalities, but in the specifics of people and lives and situations. I think there's a lot of similarities, and I may have shared the story on the podcast before, but uh, my wife and I were one time in Telluride, Colorado, which I don't know if you've ever been there, but it's it's beautiful. So it's, it's a little town, 1800 town, sits in a box canyon up at like 9,000 feet, and there's a gondola ski lift that takes you up to a ski resort up at the top where celebrities have homes, and in the sort of early summer when we're there, there's a big waterfall off one of the canyon walls right at the edge of town. And, you know, there's elk grazing as we're riding this gondola up. I mean, it's like everything you could imagine. And uh, we're riding with this lady who, as we got talking to her, kind of an elderly lady and nice jewelry, well-dressed. She had retired and lived in this ski resort. And she got asking where we were from. And I, my wife and I told her we were from Springfield, Missouri. And she instantly jumped in and said, is that near Branson, Missouri? Which we're about 45 minutes from there. And I explained that to her. And she said, my husband and I think Branson is the most beautiful place in the country. We vacation there every year. <laughs> Which my wife and I are kind of, you were having the same, we're kind of chuckling about because, you know, it's home for us. Uh, yeah, right. but, but it really kicked off this interesting, it was a really, it became a pivotal moment in my understanding of what it was to be a pastor and ultimately even a writer, because what I realized was people vacation to the places we live and we vacation to the places they live. Yeah. What is it we see in those places that they've stopped seeing? And what is it that they see in our home that we've stopped seeing? And is it possible to cultivate, as you're saying, that kind of attention that lets you keep seeing those things, even though it's home, even though it's every day? Um, that really started to change the way I thought about pastoring in a place like Springfield, Missouri, which, you know, is, it's not, it's not Nashville. We'll put it that way. Right. (laughs) So what does it mean to like, see, see what God's doing here? What does it mean to know this place, to commit myself to seeing those things? And I do think you're right. That, that to me becomes the, the real work of writing as well. How do I just pay attention to what's there and be able to help other people see what they've, they've stopped seeing or what they're overlooking? Yeah, that's great, Chase. I, I think that's, that's a you have really articulated the um, kind of what motivates uh, a lot of my writing. And um, if I were a pastor, I, you know, I, I think that would be a a very let's just say that vision of the world uh, that has legs. <laughs> you know, as, as a as a pastor, that uh, that can keep you going a long time. 
Yeah. Yeah. As a writer, as a pastor. Um, and then comes the trick of grammar, right? Now I've got to figure out how do I put this thing that I'm seeing in sentences. Yeah. But you know, grammar's the easy part. That's technical. And that's, that's, um, it's, it's the vision that's, that's hard to teach. Well, Jonathan, uh, what are ways people, if they want to be able to participate in these courses, because again, there's a good balance. You can get the grammar from you, but I know this is the kind of this, this skill of observation is part of what you're teaching in your fiction courses as well and other online workshops that you have. What's the best way for people to be able to find those classes you're teaching? Um, maybe be able to sign up for the habit, the weekly email newsletter and just be able to, to keep up with the, the advice, the, the education you're putting out for writers. Um, Jonathan-Rogers.com is, a, is the place to start, um, and, and there's you – know, you'll find an uh, entree into all those things. But yeah, the um, – I do hope people, especially, will sign up for The Habit. That's, that's just been really fun to, to be able to serve other writers that way every week, um, and, um, and so I, I do hope uh, a lot of your listeners will, will uh, sign up for The Habit and um, – it's just a way to, to, to keep in touch. And, um, obviously anybody wants to sign up for my classes. I'd, I'd love that too. But, but the habits, it, it, it's been a good thing for me to say, I'm going to give, here's something I'm just going to give to people. Um, and, and, see what, see what the Lord does with it, you know? Yeah. Well, I found it to be really helpful. I know others will, and maybe a good way to wrap up is this as, uh, as there's some, aspiring writers or struggling writers that are listening, looking at 2019, thinking ahead, what's some advice you would give them about, um, about picking back up that calling about seeing it through, about setting in place, those habits. You know, the world is, uh, the world tells us so many stories and, and there's, and there's so many of them are false stories. And, you know, writing is a way we push back by saying, no, 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 this is, this is true. The things you say, they're true in their way, but here's something truer. And that is, I don't know of any, of a more important thing to do to, to build the kingdom than to say, no, here's what's really true. I mean, think about, um, um, you know, St. Augustine, you know, his idea of the city of man and the city of God, that's really just two competing stories. And as Christian people who write, we're telling the truer story. And, um, and that gives me a lot of courage, um, to, to get up in the morning and actually do the work. Um, and by the way, there are many other ways we tell the story besides writing, but we're talking about writing here. And, and so, um, I think that's, I don't know if that counts as advice. That's just encouragement. Um, the, it's, it's important work to tell the truer story, um, because the other stories in the end just don't work. Yeah. I think it's a good encouragement and, uh, hopefully here's to a a 2019 full of improved writing habits. Here's, here's to better habits. As always, you can find show notes for today's episode by going to pastorwriter.com slash 47. There you'll find information about Jonathan's email newsletter as well as the courses that he offers. If you haven't already, I would appreciate it if you might consider leaving a review of the podcast. Reviews are the best way for me to receive feedback, but also for new people to be able to find the show. I really appreciate those of you who have taken the time to do it, and it would mean a lot to me if you would even just a star review or maybe leave a few words what the show's meant to you. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.